Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you interested in period-appropriate wood finishes? Do you want to know what kind of chisels are the most useful for a traditional hand tool shop? Are you unsure about the right storage solution for your precious hand tools? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 9 of the show for August 16th, 2017. It's been a slow couple of weeks in the shop lately because I was away on vacation. Uh, You know, it's interesting Because I typically try to completely unplug when I go on vacation. You know, I try not to check emails. I turn my phone off unless I really, you know, have to to take an important call. Um, I don't read blogs or check social media or, you know, I just try to completely unplug and enjoy my break from everything. But, you know, this time was a a little bit different um, because I wanted to publish a couple of blog posts while we were away. And I actually wrote the posts before we left for vacation as I, and I saved them as drafts with the intention of publishing them from my phone while we were away. Um, and eventually I was able to do so, but because we were, you know, up in the mountains camping, um, I actually had to walk around until I could find cell service to be able to hit the publish button, you know, so it's kind of ironic. And I, I know, uh, I know WordPress would have let me schedule the post to release whenever I wanted it to, but, um, you know, I, I, that kind of would have messed up the social media aspect of it because WordPress shares your social media feeds as soon as you hit the publish button, whether you publish right away or schedule it for a later date. Um, you know, so the only way for me to delay the social media share was to publish them from my phone while we were away, you know, and I know that's getting into the weeds on, uh, on the ins and outs of the podcast and all, but, um, you know, I just thought it was kind of ironic how dependent we become on our technology, even, even when we don't want to be connected, you know, it just seems like we, we can't get away from it anymore. You know, years ago, I would have just not bothered to post anything while I was away, but now, you know, I feel like I want to keep some kind of schedule, however loose it may be. So, uh, you know, even though I want to take a break from that connection, uh, I find it kind of hard to do so, but uh, you know, enough of that babbling. Let's uh, let's let's get to talking about woodworking. So I have been continuing the work on the new saws that I've been building. I have gotten some of the backs done and attached to the blades. Uh, I started laying out some of the handles, but they're not quite ready to get started yet. I still have a few more backs to finish. Um, I figure I've got probably two or three more, you know, m- maybe two weeks left of work on the saws, and I should be ready to put some of them up in the store for sale on the website. Um, But other than the saws, I haven't really worked on much else. I haven't had a whole lot of time in there. I do have a a few thoughts for projects on the horizon, but I'm not really ready to start on any of them just yet. So I'll save that discussion for a future episode. Um, I have also made the decision to stop publishing my weekly email newsletter Uh, I started the newsletter back in April as a way to try and better engage with the blog readers and and offer some additional thoughts and musings once a week that may not really make sense for the blog itself. Um, I enjoyed writing the newsletter, but recently it has just seemed like it really wasn't serving a a good purpose. Uh, And the stats have really supported that conclusion because only about 
60% of newsletter subscribers were even opening the email. So uh, I've decided to refocus a bit where it makes more sense. Uh, the blog and podcasts will, of course, continue. Um, and I hope to be able to slowly start getting back to making a few videos in the next few months. Uh, a lot of people have asked about videos and audio podcasts has been quite popular. So uh, I want to be able to put more effort into those. So if you were a newsletter subscriber, I apologize, but I think there will be better things to come. So I don't have any new patrons this week, but I do want to thank William Elliott, Arcadius Joukowsky, Bill Warnock, Krister Kay, Lawrence Polinsky, and Jeff Skiles for your continued support on Patreon. And if you want to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. Uh, and for those that are patrons or those that are thinking about becoming patrons, just know that uh, the money from that is being put aside so that we can get back into making videos because we need to, we need a little bit of uh, an equipment upgrade. So uh, if you're interested in, you know, seeing us get back to making videos again, you know, consider becoming a patron and, and help and support that cause. I don't have any feedback to share with you this week. So instead, let's get right into the mailbox. So our first question comes from Thomas. And uh, Thomas has a very simple question. He says, what are some good period finishes? So this is an interesting one because, you know, a lot of times people think of period finishes as complex or complicated or, you know, just something that you can't be bothered with. But the ironic thing is a lot of period finishes were really no different than finishes that we use today. Um, one of my favorite sources for looking at different uh, period finish recipes and ways of applying those those finishes is a book by my friend Stephen Shepard. Uh, it's called Shellac, Linseed Oil, and Paint, Traditional 19th Century Woodwork Finishes. Now, it's interesting because when you when you hear these, you know, shellac, linseed oil, and paint, well, we use a lot of those same finishes today. And in that book, Stephen talks about different um you know, grades of shellac and how shellac can be applied and how it's mixed. Um, linseed oil, and then he takes the linseed oil and talks about how that can be made into oil-based varnishes, um, again, which are really very similar to the varnishes that we use today, whether it's, you know, an alkyd resin varnish or a urethane varnish. Well, some of the older copal resin varnishes, for example, um, are basically the same thing. They're a resin that is dissolved in an oil by heating the oil um, so that you have a, a harder finish than the oil itself. So, you know, a lot of the period finishes are very similar to the finishes we, we get today. So the oil varnishes of the past are not a whole lot different than the oil varnishes we have now. It's just the resins are usually a little bit different. Like the, the urethane resins, um, like in polyurethane, are a little tougher than some of the older resins. Um, but that's not true in every case either. Paints are, are another example. They used, you know, lead-based paints, whereas now we don't use lead in our paint. The, uh, a lot of paints will use titanium dioxide to make them more opaque instead of white lead. Um, you know, and but a lot of this, the pigments are the same, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a red iron oxide or a yellow ochre or something along those lines or, um, you know, so 
if you if you look into start looking into period finishes, I think what you're going to find is they're not a whole lot different than finishes that you can buy today. Um, sometimes it's just the resin or the the pigment um, or the you know certain ingredients that might have been a little bit different. Sometimes the solvents are a little bit different because they might have used um, like a turpentine solvent or an alcohol or some type of spirit rather than a petroleum based um, solvent. So. Those are the primary differences. Um, in terms of what to use, you know, I would I look at period finishes finishes the same way that I look at modern finishes, and you know, the finish that I'm going to use is going to be based on the application for the piece. You know, if it's an interior piece, I might use um, shellac, I might use a linseed oil based varnish, um, or if I want to paint it, you know, I might use a milk paint, or I might mix up my own paint with, um, you know, linseed oil or a linseed oil based varnish that I, um, I add some type of pigment to, um, which is essentially what paint is, right? Um, so, you know, there's not a whole lot, I would say, that's different about period furnishes, finishes, um, as opposed to what we can get today. Um, most of the finishes that we get today are simply more convenient versions of period finishes because they've been pre-mixed um, in the right, you know, proportions and you don't have to do a lot of experimenting, but if you're really interested in period finishes, I think Steven's book is a great place to start. Um, and really you, you can go a long way from there. So our next question comes from George and George says, I remember you doing a podcast about choosing one's first chisels. I have a good set of basic bench chisels, but I'd like to know what other kinds of chisels you find most useful in traditional work. So George, you you actually made me go back and, and look for my old podcast because it's actually been a while since um, I've looked through a lot of my old videos and you are absolutely right. There was a uh, a tip from, I think it was 2014, maybe 20, 2012, somewhere around there. I'm not even sure exactly when it was um, that talked about choosing your bench chisels. So, um, so considering you already have a good set of bench chisels, what are some other chisels that that we find useful in traditional work. So the first ones that would come to mind for me would be mortise chisels. Um, if you're going to do traditional joinery and you're going to work in a traditional manner, you need some way to make mortises. Now you can bore the mortise and use your bench chisels to cut the, to, to clean it up. You can completely chop your mortises with a bench chisel, but you're going to find without a doubt that using a mortise chisel is going to make that task easier. Can you do it in a, uh, you know, with other methods? Of course you can. There are plenty of other methods you can use for, for making a mortise by hand, but the mortise chisel is absolutely the easiest way to do it and the fastest way to do it. So once you get established, once you have your basic set of bench chisels and you've got some room in your budget for some more chisels, um, I would say definitely look at a mortise chisel or two. Um, I used to have a complete set of mortise chisels. I think it was seven or eight of them that I had from uh, a little eighth of an inch increasing in size by sixteenths of an inch all the way up to, um, I think, seven sixteenths or half inch I had. When I, I, years ago I had, I guess it was maybe early, early 2016, I had a, a big tool blowout. I was I sold off a lot of my excess tools and I sold most of those mortise chisels and I kept two. I kept my quarter inch and I kept my three eighths inch. And those are the sizes that I use for ninety-five percent of the mortises that I make. 
Um, so really, I think you could do a lifetime of work with a quarter inch mortise chisel and a three eighth inch mortise chisel. You really don't need much more than that. Um, other chisels that you might find useful, um, just thinking through my, my own tool chest, um, in candle gouges. I've mentioned these before on the podcast. Uh, I've talked about them for years on the blog. In candle gouges, I find incredibly useful. Again, I don't think you need a huge set. Uh, my set is just four, quarter, half, three quarter, and one inch. Um, and they do just about all the work that I need from an in candle gouge. But I find a lot of use for an in candle gouge. So you'd be surprised once you have these tools how often you will pick them up and how useful they can be. Um, let's see, other types of chisels that you might find useful. Um, fishtail chisel, you know, you can make one of these from an old chisel. I actually bought a Lee Nielsen fishtail chisel. Um, and they're useful for cleaning up half-blind dovetails. Are they essential? Absolutely not. You know, you can use a, a smaller chisel to get in those corners. You can use your marking knife to get in those corners. They're, they are definitely a luxury item, um, but they are a nice little little tool to have. Um, if you have some extra room in, in your tool chest and your tool budget um, for kind of a, a luxury tool. Um, if you're going to do any carving, obviously you're going to be looking at carving chisels. So that's, you know, we talked about that uh, one, last podcast or the podcast before. We talked about carving uh, carving chisels. So you're going to need those if you're going to, if you plan to do any type of carving in your work. Um, and essentially, you know, really that's about it. Um, one of the chisels that I find that people talk about a lot, but I find absolutely no use for in my work are long pairing chisels. Um, you know, these are chisels that were originally intended for pattern makers. Uh, and if you go back and you look in old period inventories, uh, period pairing chisels were no longer than regular, the regular bench chisels. Typically what you found with a period pairing chisel was that they were about the same length as a bench chisel, but the blade was a little bit thinner. Um, and they were sharpened to a finer edge and a, a sharper edge, you know, maybe with a, lo a lower bevel angle. But for the most part, other than that, they were indistinguishable from a standard bench chisel. The long pairing chisel is some, somewhat more of a, a modern uh, a modern tool that came around, you know, the time that pattern makers um, in, in foundries really started uh, their trade. And... Uh, you know, before that, we don't see a whole lot of use of really long chisels like that. And I honestly have never really found a use for them in my work. You know, I take a regular bench chisel, sharpen it with a lower bevel angle, and that becomes my pairing chisel. I just never hit that chisel with a, a mallet, um, you know, and it works for me. I have a couple, actually. I have a an inch and a half chisel that I use for pairing that's sharpened with a lower angle, and I have a one-inch chisel that I use for pairing. Um, and they're the same size as my standard bench chisels. They just have, they're just sharpened with a little bit lower angle. That's all. Um, but yeah, you know, so that those are basically the chisels that I find most useful. Um, chisels that are not in that list that you might think about, like um, out kennel firmer gouges. Now I'm not talking about carving gouges, but the real heavy firmer gouges. Um, I used to have a set of those, sold them because they really saw no use in my shop. Um, if I'm carving, I use carving gouges. Um, and, it, you know, other than that, I really didn't find much use for out kennel firmer gouges. Um, you know, that, and that's about it. You know, my chisel selection is, is fairly small. So um, I don't use too many other than the ones that I mentioned there. So I hope that helps.
So our third question comes from Patrick. Patrick says, what do you consider your must-have hand tool appliances like bench hooks, shooting boards, etc.? So Patrick, um, you know, it's interesting that you asked this question because as well, and I was going back to look through old videos for the, the podcast that George was talking about from the last question, I actually ran across an old video that I did on hand tool appliances as well. So I will actually put links to both of those videos in the show notes. Um, but, you know, years ago, I actually had a lot more bench appliances, hand tool appliances in my shop than I do now. These days, I've kind of pared it down quite a bit. Um, the first one, obviously, that, that I recommend everyone have is a bench hook. Um, and that's a pretty simple appliance used for sawing at, you know, on top of the bench. Um, and it does not have to be fancy. Mine is, you know, not that fancy. It's made out of cherry and nailed together with some cut nails. And, you know, that's about it. Um, and that's probably the most used appliance in my shop. I would say the second most used appliance in my shop is the shooting board, the 90 degree shooting board. Um, I use that all the time when it's, when I'm doing drawers or, you know, if I'm going to dovetail small boxes or drawers or something like that, um, where I need the end square, I will, you know, use the shooting board quite a bit. I don't necessarily shoot, um, every board that I, that I cut square, you know, if it doesn't need it, I won't bother, but, um, I will use the shooting board quite frequently. Uh, in terms of shooting boards, a lot of people will make tons of different appliances for their, you know, add-ons, I guess you could say for their shooting boards, for, for doing all kinds of different miters, you know, there's, um, added fences for wide miters and flat miters and, and all these different types of miters. You know, there's three or four different types of fences. I've never found most of those um, add-ons useful for um, for furniture work because the fact of the matter is the way most of those miter uh, fences or miter shooting boards work doesn't work for furniture moldings. So, and, and this is really a, a, a better better topic for a, a video podcast so I can show these different types of shooting boards. But essentially the, the miter shooting board usually has a 45 degree fence um, and the piece sits flat. And that's a great appliance if you make frames, if you make picture frames, um, you know, anything with a, a flat type of, of molding, <clears throat> because that's what that type of shooting board is meant to cut. But in terms of moldings for a piece of furniture, that shooting board, that the standard miter shooting board doesn't work. There is another type of shooting board that kind of looks like a box. Um, you know, it, it's sort of it looks like the four sides of a drawer or four sides of a box, but with a very narrow opening. And uh, you kind of put the piece in there and wedge it in there, and you run the uh, the plane against a forty five degree side of that box. Um, Again, that type of shooting board is made for inside miters. So we're talking about frames again. Really not meant for um, for miters for furniture moldings. So again, it's a it's a, a miter type of miter shooting board that I have not found a use for. The third type is a ramp that goes on top of a ninety degree shooting board, and it sort of makes your the piece that you're mitering stick way up in the air. Um, this one you might think at first would be the type, you know, that a lot of people will call this a donkey's ear, though it's not a true donkey's ear. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. So this type of appliance, again, the, the workpiece sticks way up in the air at a 45 degree angle, and then you plane the edge at a 45 degree angle. And again, this is really doing 
inside moldings. It's not doing outside moldings. Um, and it's difficult to, to tell when your piece is flat, but when you have a mold, a, a piece that is actually molded, if you have a piece of molding that you're trying to miter and you put it on one of these miter boxes with these miter appliances, you quickly discover that it's not going to work for what you need it for because it's cutting the miter in the wrong direction. So the fourth, the, the last type of miter shooting board to me is the most useful for a furniture maker anyway. If you make frames um, or mitered boxes and you want to you know miter the box sides, all those other miter appliances that I just talked about will work fine for you. If you make furniture and you need to mold to miter your moldings for your furniture, those will not work. What you need is a true donkey's ear shooting board. And the true donkey's ear is a, a appliance that clamps into your bench vise and you hold your molding stock against the, the board at a 45 degree angle and the, mort- the molding stock points towards the floor at a 45 degree angle. And then the plane rides in a, a shoot on that, um, on that shooting board and it can plane in both directions. So the fence is set amidships essentially. It's set in the middle of the shooting board so that the plane can ride in either direction because depending on which side of the molding you're planing, um, you would need to flip that molding on one side of the fence or the other. Um, in my experience, that is the only shooting board that is going to work for furniture moldings. So, um, you know, that I find in my shop, at least the donkey's ear, the, the traditional donkey's ear, um, does work well as a, um, shooting board for moldings. And that's a a useful appliance in my shop. Um, the miter jack is another one that's often, um, mentioned. It is quite a, you know, it's a very traditional appliance, but I've again, never found a use for it because in my experience, a miter jack planes the moldings in the wrong direction. It's great for inside. Um, you know, if you're, if you're making a miter, mitering a molding on an inside corner, but when you're wrapping a case, you're putting that molding on the outside. So it, it cuts the miter in the wrong direction. So that one doesn't work too well for me. So that's really about all I find useful for me. Um, you know, winding sticks, if you want to consider them an appliance and not a tool, of course, um, I find those useful. Um, I, and they're used, you know, very frequently in my shop. And uh, one other small appliance that I have is uh, just a, um, it's almost like a shooting board for a chisel. It's just a block that's cut with 45 degree angles on either side. And then the back side of it has a rabbit cut in it so that I can put it over the edge of um, rails and styles for like doors for door frames. And that allows me to miter the moldings on the, uh, the inside edge of a door frame at a perfect 45 degree angle so that when the door frame parts are put together, um, I can cope those moldings and they fit real well. So, uh, yeah, but that's, that's about it. I don't really find a lot of appliances all that useful in my shop these days, and I don't have too many of them anymore. So, uh, hopefully that will help answer your question. So our last question comes from nobody. Um, I don't know. It's because I don't actually have a question for, for you today. Uh, the questions were quite light for this week's show. You know, y'all have not been sending in your questions. So I'm, I'm putting it out there, you know, send in, uh, send in your questions for the show because the, the show really depends on uh, your questions and suggestions for topics. So, um, you know, I say it every week, if you have feedback questions or topic suggestions, and I hope you do, um, send them in a voicemail at 276-601-3123. 
um, or go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the form or send an email with your questions and topic suggestions. And I hope you all will send me a whole bunch of them this week so that we uh, have a lot more material for uh, our future shows. And after the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob. I want to talk to you about a way that you can support the show without any additional cost to you. I know a lot of you already shop online for your woodworking tools and other needs. But did you know that you can actually send a little love my way just by shopping online like you would normally do? The next time that you need to buy a woodworking tool, book, DVD, or just about anything else online, head on over to my website at brfinewoodworking.com first. In the footer of the website, or on the right side of the blog, you'll see several affiliate links for Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon.com. Just click on one of those links, and you'll be taken from my website to the merchant that you want to shop with. Then just shop as you normally would. Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon will know that you were sent to them through my website, and in return, they'll send me a small percentage of your total purchase as a commission. It costs you nothing more than you were already planning to spend, but just by going through the links on my blog, you send a little love my way to help keep the show going. So don't forget, go to brfinewoodworking.com and click the affiliate links in the website footer or the right side of the blog the next time you shop online. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic is hand tool storage. And this topic actually came from a question from our, our patron, Krister K. And he says, I'm at a point where I really need to consider how I'm storing and, access and accessing my tools, not just where I'm keeping them, but how I'm interacting with them and bringing items in and out of my active work area. I want to minimize the frustrating times when I take out a tool I need and have no idea where to keep it while I temporarily switch to another and then have to go through multiple steps to reorganize once I'm done. But I don't want to go the giant hanging tool chest route since my workspace is quite small and in a dark basement that I would like to escape once in a while. So portability and accessibility are the trade-offs. I'm wondering where that balance lies for you. I'm mulling over creating two tool chests, one for my specialty tools that see less use and can be kept close and elevated to reduce rust, and another for my frequent tools with a more task-oriented organization inside. But I'm not sure how to make that solution work for all the little miscellaneous bits like pencils, marking knife, combination square, etc. that are half the problem. Lots of little trays, maybe? So, yeah, there's, you know, there are, are a lot of different solutions in terms of tool storage. Um, and, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of you may be in the situation where you've been acquiring tools for a little while now. Um, and you, maybe you've built a project or two, a small project or two, but, um, you know, now you've got all these tools and you don't really have a place to put them. Maybe they've just been on a shelf under your workbench. Maybe they've been in some cardboard boxes up on a, on a shelf on the wall or a freestanding shelf or, um, you know, maybe you've got some old recycled kitchen cabinets that are hanging on the wall, but you know, as, as everyone knows for hand tools, those old recycled kitchen cabinets just are, are not really an ideal solution, you know, great for storing finishes and sandpaper and glue and that kind of stuff. But 
for actually storing your hand tools not the best solution, you know, not the most convenient solution, I should say. So what are some of the options for, you know, storing your hand tools, making, accessing them convenient, um, and in Chrysler's case, portability as well. So, you know, some of the things that I've seen and that I've used, um, I'll talk about those. And, and, you know, I've used probably just about everything to store my, my hand tools and, and different types of tools. Um, so I've got a little bit of experience with most of the popular solutions. So uh, I'm hoping, uh, you know, I can shed a little bit of light and then uh, I'll share my current solution with you. So mechanics rolling tool chests seem to be uh, one that comes up a lot for folks that don't want to build something um, specific or don't have the time to build something. They just need something real quick. And I will say that these types of uh, these types of chests do work quite well. Um, you know, they have small drawers. They have a, a range of sizes of drawers so that you can put your some of your larger tools like uh, like hand planes um, in bigger drawers, bigger, deeper drawers, and some of your smaller tools like squares and uh, marking knives and things like that, you know, fit great in some of the smaller drawers. The problem I have with mechanics tool chests is one, um, they're metal and they're not very tight in terms of um, air infiltration. So in a shop like mine, where there is a lot of moisture in the environment, mechanics type tool chests do nothing to help protect your tools. Do they organize them? Yep. They're great. Um, you can roll them around the shop, which makes them great and, and portable, at least um, in terms of on that floor. So, you know, if you're in a basement, you can pretty conveniently roll them anywhere around the basement. Um, or if you're in the garage, you know, you can roll them out into the driveway um, or, you know, roll them around the garage as you need. But um, they don't do much in terms of protecting your tools from rust. Um you know, the tools I have, I still have a mechanics tool chest because I, I do have quite a few um, home improvement and mechanics hand tools, you know, from from socket sets to wrenches and, and pliers and things like that. Um, and a lot of those tools, I will go out there and find rust on them because, you know, that that tool chest does just does not seal the tools um, as well. So um, they're a good solution if you just want to, you know, if you're the type of person that just wants to buy a storage solution, um, you know, they work quite well. But in my opinion, they're not quite ideal for hand tool, you know, for woodworking tools. Um, another possibility would be like portable job site toolboxes. And these are the, you know, the traditional toolbox, you know, things that could be made out of plastic, they could be made out of metal, but they are essentially, you know, just a, a toolbox that you can, with a latch on them that you can carry. Some of them might, might have a couple of trays in them to help you organize your smaller tools. Um, you know, I've, I've used these before. I don't think they work so great for, you know, woodworking and carpentry type tools because most of those, most of the tools that we use for woodworking and carpentry type tasks are kind of big for those trays, you know, whether it's chisels or, uh, things like that. And, they, and there's no dividers and things just kind of bang around in there. And, um, you know, they, it doesn't usually work out too well. Um, but the benefit of them is they are portable. Um, and they might actually work if you've got a small set of specialty tools. Let's say you've got some spoon carving tools. You know, you've got a small hatchet, 
you've got a you know a few knives uh maybe a gouge or two and uh some files and you know something like that you know a small toolbox might be great to hold that kind of stuff where you know you can just take that that toolbox throw it in your car and go camping or you know go to the park and sit there and carve spoons you know while the kids are on the monkey bars or um you know it, so if you've got some small specialty tools that you want to be able to take with you that might be a good solution um but in terms of primary storage for most of our hand tools you know that really doesn't doesn't work for me uh, another solution is just to store them on the wall um if you're familiar with my old shop um my old there's plenty of pictures of it on my old Logan Cabinet Shop website um and most of my old videos uh pretty much all of my old my old videos at this point were filmed in my old shop and what you'll see is I have wall storage um and I just put you know some some uh, one by pine up on the walls and I made custom tool holders for the tools that I wanted to hang on the walls um I love this type of storage it makes the tools accessible they're right in front of you if you you know you're working with some chisels on the bench and you need to get them out of the way you put them right in the rack on the wall and they're out of the way and then when you need them again they're right there in front of you I got to say that having the tools stored on the wall like that was probably my number one favorite solution for um for a shop for for storing woodworking hand tools the problem with that solution is that those tools are out in the open and exposed to the elements so they're going to get dust on them and and even in a hand tool shop you're going to have some airborne dust and that dust is going to settle on your tools no matter how well you clean them and dust is um hydroscopic which means it's going to attract water and when the 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 dust attracts that moisture from the air that means it's holding that moisture against your tools so if you live in a relatively humid uh, area of the country or of the world or if the uh, the area that your shop is in is not climate controlled storing tools on the wall is probably not going to be your best solution it worked great for me when we lived in new jersey and i had a climate controlled shop the humidity was fairly constant in that shop all year round because of the air conditioning and uh and heating of the space so the shop stayed fairly dry and i didn't really have to worry about rust when i moved down here to virginia and my shop moved into an unheated unair conditioned uninsulated shed essentially i put those tools on the wall and within a couple of weeks i had rust all over my metal planes and and chisels and things that i had to clean off and then put in some type of better storage solution so um if you don't have a climate controlled space if you don't uh, if you live in a relatively humid climate or a cl- or a climate that swings a lot storing your tools on the wall is probably not going to be the best idea um unless you can control the climate in that space somehow and con- control the moisture in that shop um it is my favorite way for accessibility it's not very portable um but in terms of accessibility and keeping your workbench area clean and neat and you know access to the tools and putting them right back um it's a great solution another um possibility is is a wall hanging tool cabinet um and i think christo you had uh, referred to this that is something that you didn't want to build um and as i think you implied it's not a very portable solution just like the um 
just the boards and the tool racks hanging on the wall, um, it's pretty much permanent. Once it's mounted on the wall, it's staying there and you're not really going to travel with that. Um, that's fine if you don't need to do that. Um, it does offer a, a, a chest like that, a wall hanging tool cabinet, does offer your tools more protection because you can close the doors and seal seal it up a little bit so um, you can avoid some of those humidity swings and temperature swings that cause problems with rust on tools. Uh, you can also put, you know, like a golden rod or a, a little humid, you know, uh, silico gel type things in there if that uh, helps to, you know, keep the moisture down inside the cabinet and keep the rust off the tools. Um, what I don't like about those wall hanging tool cabinets is that it takes up, if you hang them right over your bench, they take up valuable bench top space because those cabinets are typically, you know, 10 to 12 inches deep when the doors are closed. So if you've got a, a workbench that's only typically about 24 inches across and you put hang that tool chest right over top of your workbench, you're taking up 12 inches of your workbench depth where that tool chest is. So if you've got a big, you know, case piece that you're working on or something, that chest is in the way. That tool cabinet is just in the way um, over top of your, your workbench there. The solution is to put the tool cabinet someplace that is away from the workbench. Either move your workbench away from the wall, um, and Shannon Rogers' um, workshop is set up like this, so that, that's a solution. That tool cabinet is a solution that works well for him because his workbench is away from the wall. Or alternatively, if your workbench is on the wall, you move your cabinet on a wall somewhere else away from the workbench. Again, the problem with this is now you've got to go over to wherever your tool cabinet is and get the tools out that you need, bring them over your, to your bench to work, do the work that you're going to do, and then if they start to get in the way because you've got too many tools out, now you've got to gather them all up and walk them over across the shop or to wherever it is that that cabinet is hanging to put them away. Um, obviously, the solution to that is to build a bigger workbench so you can leave all the tools out, um, but you know, not everyone has the space available for a big eight foot workbench like some of us do. Um, you know, that that's a solution that works for me is just to, you know, make my workbench as big as possible. But if you're limited in space and you can't make a, a big workbench, you know, having that tool cabinet hanging right over top of your workbench is not all that convenient. It takes up a lot of space. And again, hanging it somewhere else in the shop means you've got to gather those tools up and walk them across the shop to put them away if they, you know, if your bench starts to get too cluttered. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the hanging tool cabinets. Um, you know, I would, I prefer open storage on the wall, like I had in my old shop to a hanging cabinet, if I'm going to have wall storage. Um, but you know, the, the hanging tool cabinet does offer some additional protection in terms of moisture, as long as you close the doors. Um, if you leave the doors open all the time, however, it's really not no better a solution than just hanging tools on on tool holders directly mounted to the wall. So the last suggestion I have is um, what I what my current situation is now, what I'm using right now, and I use a traditional tool chest. Um, and Chris Schwarz made these popular again, um, you know, with his anarchist tool chest book. Um, but they've been a popular solution for a long time for good reason. Um, you know, you can build them in multiple sizes and I have two different sizes. I, I have uh, a full size chest that is based on 
the one in Chris's book. And I also have a small chest that is uh, based on one that Roy Underhill built and on his show and wrote an article for Popular Woodworking on, uh, I think, around 2009. And it's a, it's a much smaller version of the chest that is actually quite portable. So what I do is while I'm in my shop, I keep all of the tools, all of my um, main woodworking tools in the large uh, tool chest. When I, and then in the smaller tool chest, I have specialty tools like my draw knife, my in shave, um, you know, just extra, extra bench planes. My wooden bench planes live in uh, the smaller tool chest because I, I have fewer wooden bench planes now. Um, you know, so just extra tools or specialty tools live in that smaller tool chest. The full size tool chest houses all the tools that I use on a day in and day out basis. That that tool chest lives right next to my workbench. So it's very easy for me to go right over to the tool chest, get what I need, put it on my bench, do the work that I need to do. If the bench starts to get cluttered, the chest is right there. It's, it's almost, not quite, but almost as convenient as working on the tool boards that I had in my old shop because I don't have to walk across the shop to get to the chest. The chest is right there, right next to my workbench. And the benefit of it being on the floor and being lower than my workbench is that it's not in the way on top of the workbench. So, uh, you know, I'm not using up any of that real estate over top of my bench for a cabinet or tool storage. All that space against the wall is freed up. Um, the, when I need to travel someplace, I will take the set of tools that I need, put them in the smaller tool chest, and I can pretty much lift and move that smaller tool chest around on my own and not have to worry too much about getting help unless I load a lot of tools into it. If I load a lot of tools into the chest, then it's nice to have a, a second pair of hands to help me move it. But as long as I don't load too many tools into that chest, I can lift it up, move it, load it into the back of my truck, unload it, um, you know, whatever I need to do. If I'm moving just a small set of tools, again, going back to specialty tools like spoon carving, a lot of times, um, you know, I'll just throw them in a, in a bag. If you've maybe got like a, a tote bag or something, you know, you can throw the those small specialty tools in there and it makes them uh, very easy to transport. And actually, it's a, it's quite a traditional method, you know, period uh, period joiners and carpenters, when they had to go to a, a job site, they weren't lugging big wooden tool chests from job site to job site. You know, if they had to leave the shop and go off uh, away from the shop to another site, they essentially used bags um, to carry their tools in. So it's a very traditional solution. So, um, you know, that's what I'll typically use if I just have a small set of tools that I need to bring, you know, somewhere to, to do a repair or to, you know, if I want to take some spoon carving tools, um, you know, with me on a, on a vacation or to the park or something, um, I'll just use a bag like that. And, uh, and that's, that seems to work for me, but, um, you know, the tool chest to me, that's the best solution for me these days. You know, it's, it helps quite a bit to keep the rust off my tools because it, it slows the moisture exchange, you know, in the area where the tools are and the area of the shop and it lets the temperature of the tools change slowly. So we get a lot of nights where it's, you know, it can get, it, the temperature can change 30 to 40 degrees overnight here in the mountains. So, 
Um, you know, when you get up in the morning and it's cold outside and there's still a lot of that residual humidity left in the air from the day before, um, you know, if you've got cold steel, cold iron, the uh, that moisture will condense on it immediately. So having the tools in a, in a wooden chest that is basically sealed when I close that lid really helps with protecting my tools from rust and, and from dust and from moisture. So uh, that seems to be the best solution for me these days. Um, and there are other versions of the tool chest. So um, Chris wrote about a Dutch tool chest several years ago as well. And uh, while I have not built one, it, it looks like a great solution um, you know, for a set of tools as well. It may not hold quite as many tools, even a large version to me does not look like it's going to hold quite as many tools as a, a, a full size English type tool chest will hold. But, um, it also looks like, especially in the smaller size that the, the Dutch style tool chest would be a lot easier for travel purposes than a small English tool chest. So, and, you know, I would actually like to build a, the small version of the Dutch tool chest to replace my small English tool chest, just because I think it would be easier for me to travel with than, uh, than the small English tool chest. So, so Christopher, I hope that gives you some ideas, um, you know, for your situation in terms of portability, I think some type of small chest is probably going to be the way to go. Um, and for ultra portability, just take a few tools and throw them in a bag. And I think really that's, uh, that's your best bet. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. And as a reminder, please send in your feedback and questions and topic suggestions because your content, your ideas, your questions really drive the content of the show. So in order to do that, leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or email a voice memo from your phone to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also use the contact form or email address on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt009. In the show notes, you'll find links to uh, the videos that I referenced in today's show, and you'll also find links to follow me on social media. Finally, if you want to support the show and see that we get back to making some high-quality videos, uh, you have multiple options for doing so. You can become a supporter on Patreon, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates, and you'll find links for all these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.